from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. We have a special episode for you this week. Chris Beam is taking a turn in the interviewer's chair, talking with Peter Levine, who is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and the Lincoln Filing Professor of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Tufts University, and the author of the book, What Should We Do? A Theory of Civic Life. Chris and Peter have known each other and been colleagues for a long time. And in some ways, they've both spent their careers thinking about a similar question. What can individuals and groups of individuals do to strengthen civic engagement and ultimately create a healthier democracy? As you'll hear in this conversation, Chris and Peter have slightly different approaches to answering those questions. Chris's most recent book, The Seven Democratic Virtues, focuses on individual actions and thoughts and behaviors that we can all take in our own lives to strengthen democracy, while Peter's work focuses more on the collective. How can we organize and push for social change collectively in the most efficient way? So uh, there's a lot to chew on in this conversation. Uh, Chris and Peter get into a little bit of the political theory behind some of these ideas in the beginning of the conversation, but then uh, toward the latter half, shift to how we can really take these theories and ideas and put them into practice in our own lives. So I hope you enjoy this conversation between Chris Beam and Peter Levine. Peter Levine, welcome back to Democracy Works. Thank you for having me. You know, you start, I mean, this kind of theoretical argument um, with this critique of kind of the, the prevailing sense of democratic theory, that it's um, misguided or maybe better uh, incomplete. Do you want to do you want to talk about that? And then we'll go into kind of where you the, the hole that you're trying to fill here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Uh, you, you said it, you summarize it right. I think. I have a complaint about the kind of um, democratic theory, both for professional theorists and just for ordinary people, which is all about what kind of what kind of society should we have, and then the subsequent question is, therefore, what should the government be and do? And I just think that the question is, what should we do? Uh, mm -hmm. Where the we is all kinds of groups of different sizes and shapes, uh, and those are those that's what matters um and so what um kind of government we should have is is a question that groups should ask but their their really core question is what should we do and and that thus the title and every word in that title for every four words um is carrying a lot of weight right it's it's active voice it's uh it's a a very uh, considered pronoun uh, the should has a moral weight to it, right? All that. Right. And actually the we, of course, is probably the most important point because it's a pushback against two. I mean, partly I just think our culture is set up so that um, the question of what we should do gets lost. And you see this everything from advanced theory to just what happens in a regular community meeting where the question shifts off to some others. So often the question becomes, what should I do? So it becomes highly individualized. Or it becomes what should they do? Some other group, and uh, actually, we again we have to just think of the we. So, if the of the four words, the one that probably is the most important is the we. But the we should do something. Uh, 
for two reasons. One, one because that's what we need to do in the world is actually do things, make the world better. And also because there's a discipline involved in asking what should we do, not just what do we think, what's our opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the should is critical because, um, and it, real groups are, do this. They try to figure out what is right, both both uh, as means and as ends. They don't just say, oh, you know, um, what what do we feel like doing? They say, what we should we do? And the what is is a hint at um, at the facts. So groups of people need to actually know what's going on, how much, what what the trends are, how how big the problem is, how much cha change would cost. So yeah, so you gave me an opening to give a little spiel, but each of the four words does matter. And I think the one that's most lost is we. Right. I get it. Um, but I think, you know, it's also interesting to me listening to you, you know, this, the, the idea of should, I mean, you know, I, I, I continue to think that it has a moral dimension to right. it, it does. but it also has a strategic dimension and kind of a, um, uh, you know, a policy dimension, right? It's, it's, there is a problem here. Uh, what should we do to solve it? You know, there's a political climate here. What should we do strategically that improves our chances of getting it solved? And what should we do as a moral question in terms of what's the right thing to do, right? It's all yeah. kind of um, captured there, right? I think so. And you're right. And it's, so it's not just moral in a very detached way, because as soon as you put should and do together, you have to be strategic because what you shouldn't do is waste your time with kind of pie in the sky moralizing, right? I mean, um, I'm a moral philosopher by training. I, I believe in moral reasoning, but when you're a group of people who are saying, what should we do? You know, the moral dimension is critical because you, you got to do something good, but the pragmatic part is also critical because you got to actually do something. So to have a, some kind of ideal that has no relation to your behavior is, is useless. And so, yeah, it's very strategic. It's got to be very strategic. Yeah, that's good. All right. So um, in service of this um, objective, uh, you pick you take up three thinkers that you think um, all uh, have an important perspective analysis on um, on this question. And and so I'd just like to take them briefly in order. Right. OK, so um, we start with uh, Eleanor Ostrom. Mm -hmm. um, and and the 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 argument there is that or her argument you know just quickly is mm -hmm. that um, political science research can help citizens discover how to develop and sustain groups that it's not a that it's not easy and they're not self perpetuating that they they need um, care and thoughtfulness in terms of um, you know sustaining them over time and over difficulties. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's great. It's great. I might yeah. just uh, build on it by saying that it takes not only care, but also skill and the skill can be learned. So right. we can break it down and figure out, you know, for example, one of the problems a group has is that people stop contributing. They peel off and stop doing their bit and we can learn mechanisms for um, monitoring ourselves and for um, rewarding success and, or a contribution and discouraging slackers. And those things are things that you can actually accomplish. You can teach, teach and learn. That's right. And that's, that was really the core of her research was just looking at people who were doing it effectively. Right. right. And, and, um, and so it's, uh, it's wisdom garnered from 
um, people who uh, were doing it right. And so they all have a lesson, lesson to teach us. Yes. Okay. And, and so the, so the next one is um, Jürgen Habermas and there might be more people who have, who've heard of him uh, and you really focus on his um, earlier, I, guess, I think it's fair to say earlier work mm-hmm. um, true, true. in terms of, you know, just, just the, the, um, what it is to deliberate, how we deliberate, what are the um, the structures, the mechanisms, the expectations that we go into this, and what's the goal? Is that that kind of uh, uh, you know the fifth cent summary of Habermas? Yeah, and you put That's it together. A good trick, with, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's good. Um, you put it together with Ostrom because Ostrom tells you how to have a group at all. You know how to how to make sure there's pizza in a room uh, and that people will want to come and. Habermas tells you how to deal with with disagreement, um, especially principled disagreement or disagreement about morals and uh, ideals. I, I think the one thing I would I would say that might I don't know might possibly intrigue people is, you know, there's this stereotype about Habermas that he's interested in somehow um, dispassionate, reasonable conversation, and it's just not in the works of Jürgen Habermas. I mean, it's coming from certain um, very tendentious readings. Um, and so, I mean, he was, he's very closely associated with radical social movements all along, sometimes a little critical of their methods, but he's in favor of social movement mobilization. So his idea of a, of a deliberation in a society is not that you gather a representative sample of people together and have a conversation. His idea is that by squatting and occupying, um, housing in Berlin in the 1960s, you force a conversation uh, and then getting tear gassed that you force a conversation about housing. So I just, I, I guess I spent a little bit of the time in the chapter trying to kind of set the record straight about Habermas. I mean, that's an inside baseball concern for most people. Yeah. Most people don't care who, who what Habermas said. Well, but there's it is, lots it to is learn an, there. I, I agree with you, but I also, I, I think it is worth pushing you on this because, Good. you know, it's not, it's not, and um, I don't, it doesn't surprise me that, I mean, obviously, Jürgen Habermas is a very smart and and um, experienced uh, person. He's you know he's he he is engaged in genuine uh, political arguments, but by setting up the um, the process of deliberation around the idea of an ideal speech situation, it would seem to um, at least. <sighs> Mm-hmm. foster or or um recommend um a a more measured mm-hmm. rational discursive sort of argument as opposed to um a, you know going and protesting and getting tear gas so i i want to hear what yeah. you what you what you would say to that well you're right and um uh, this is a question of of interpreting a complex thinker who also is in his nineties and has been talking about different things for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I was famous already in his in his late twenties. Um, so you're right. And I guess if I um, if you want if you want to accentuate the side that's rational and so on, you can. And it, it also, in pragmatic terms, it made him you know critical sometimes of the student radicals of the 1960s and so on. Um, and he does believe in democracy and democratic processes, which at some level are also discursive. Uh, and, um, but 
what happened? But here's the the counter, though. What happens when there is not an ideal speech situation, and there isn't, according to Hubbard, which is not, you, there's no such thing, right? right. I mean, it, in the world, there just is no such thing. And he right? says so, yeah. right? So it's definitely yeah. we both agree, and everybody who thinks about him at all would agree that it's a counterfactual. So what happens mm-hmm. when you um, when you don't have that? So I think a certain kind of American. Um, um, not too, not too closely associated with Habermas, but thinking that they, they know what Habermas thinks. Thinks that what you do is you set up some forum and you invite people. So you know, you get a grant and you uh, create a uh, orga- a discussion forum and you invite people together and you have a moderator. So Habermas never talked, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong because he's written a million pages, but yeah, yeah. I don't think he ever talks about that. I don't think it would interest him. It doesn't fit in the framework that I understand and have. For him, something like the squatters, which um, he does mention them at the end of uh, Theory of Community Action, they are making the speech situation for the German Federal Republic as a whole more ideal because they're basically um, forcing a conversation. So the act of occupying a um, unoccupied, you know, a, a vacant building in West Berlin in the 1960s is, is actually a movement towards um, a, a more ideal speech situation. And I think that would kind of flabbergast people who think they know who Elmas is and don't really engage with him. I mean, the late and wonderful, and I really did like her and she was a very fine person, but Iris Marion Young caused part of this problem because she wrote that really um, compelling, beautifully written, much easier to read than Habermas piece about, um, in which she takes him to task for being, and she, I've forgotten the name of it now, but she she juxtaposes Habermas deliberator to an activist. Mm-hmm. And she has quotes and stuff. You're right. And she does the kind of she pulls out the kind of quotes you you just mentioned. But um, she sure is missing a lot of stuff. And it's very strange to treat the guy, a guy who left the Social Democratic Party because they weren't revolutionary enough as as not an activist. So I, I just think it was a misreading. You know, let's yeah, take a I, moment I'm... to 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 thank Iris Marion Young for her life well lived and everything. <laughs> and um, I'm sorry that she also died young, but. Um, she, she was wrong about Habermas, and I think a lot more people know about that than know about Habermas. In- so you kind of like take these three as kind of, um, I don't know, almost points on a triangle and are trying to find yeah. a way to to incorporate them all. And and then you, you talk about, um, you know, how we have to make these strategic choices given where we find ourselves. And and that is an incredibly difficult process, and and it really reminds me of of um, how you know Aristotle's ethics without prudence is nothing, right? I mean, he almost it's, accepts that it's nothing, and and in the same way, you know, you have to do this rigorous analysis of of where you are, and it's changing by the moment, right? And and you're probably not going to get it all right, um, but but the 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 one point that I think um, is worth kind of dwelling on, uh, and you you unpack it, um, but it's it's worth talking about here is this idea of leverage yeah. as a uh, as a as a as a way in which you make these judgments and and kind of a a mechanism. But I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How does mm-hmm. leverage? fit and and how does mm-hmm. the pursuit of leverage help you to make these kind of decisions yeah so i think the great the great problem is is scale is affecting things at large enough scales because a certain the sort of spirit after all my book is very derivative of other people and all the people i'm sort of like end up being in that smallest beautiful camp where we can imagine mm-hmm. um gathering together with 
eight people we know and they're diverse and we have relationships and we um, decide what we should do. And meanwhile, the earth is with eight, another 8 billion people is heating. So how do you change the world at scale? The problem, so what you need to do presumably is, is use leverage. So to le leverage is doing something to some intermediate thing that changes a lot of other people. For example, it's getting the government to pass a law that affects everybody or getting a celebrity to make a position that affects people's behavior or so it's it's leverage the problem with leverage is that it is um one directional so you're affecting people out there who you know can't help it and um even if it's democratic it's 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 one directional and it breaks up all the kind of relational values that i'm talking about the kind of deliberative mm. and um caring um values so I think the only way that I know that I can see this where the circle to put those things together is to say, you got to use leverage. So a group that asks, what should we do? Should be asking what leverage should we use, but you should be doing it in uh, groups that are diverse and permeable, not kind of by yourself. So the original Archimedean metaphor is, you know, Archimedes with there on one side, pulling a lever. So one dude should not be on one side, pulling the lever. There should be um, groups of people who are kind of, porous and accountable and diverse because it keeps them wise. So, you know, it sounds very abstract, but what I mean, for example, is that, for example, a union deciding whether to strike is using leverage because they're going to try to um, block the sale of some kind of product, thereby changing the policy of the government or the, of the, of the corporation that they're targeting. And they could be right or wrong because not every, not every, I'm sort of biased in favor of unions, but not hundred percent. Sometimes they're wrong. The group right. that makes the decision ought to be permeable and sort of in touch with the rest of the community, including people who are not employees and, and, and deliberative, internally deliberative, and have a rich kind of internal conversation. And then if they decide to go and strike, then they're taking a unilateral action, but they're taking a unilateral action in a way that might be informed by prior discussion and interaction. So this, this question of when and how to employ leverage is yet another kind of dangerous, tricky question that depends yeah. on circumstances, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, let, me, let me actually, you've been, you've been uh, rightly, wisely kind of highlighting the difficulty and it's true. I guess I, I do get uh, questions um, that I appreciate. They're good questions, but I get questions along the lines of, isn't your theory just way too hard? Uh, wow. And, and uh, a certain version of that is a critique because we don't need a theory that's too hard. We need a theory that's helpful. Um, I think my main answer, well, first of all, that might be true and that's a problem. But my main answer is you can't, we can't do these things alone. So it's actually not hard to be part of a process like this. You know, if there is a union with a democratic internal culture and that's connected to its community, then it isn't hard to go to the meeting and try to decide whether to strike or not. I mean, it's a tough call, but we can do right. that. If you don't have a union, it's a lot harder. So this isn't really advice to the individual, like a like a, some, a lot of traditional philosophy or theology is sort of talking to the person. Um, it, it, it's it's um, and saying this is how to live a good life. This is a, a, a blueprint for how we got to operate together. Now that means that if you don't have good groups around you, you have a problem. You may not be able to solve it by yourself. You may not even be able to solve it. Um, you may not be positioned to solve it, but but I, I would go so far as to say we need to have good kind of good groups um, 
so yeah, so so I would push. I would not, you didn't do this, but I would push back on people who think that this is just too demanding on the individual because I'm not really talking to the individual. Yeah, that's that's true. You're not, but the very end of the book, you're talking to individual activists and what True. they, you know, here's right. what you should do. And, um, and so I yeah. want you to talk about that, but then I also want to talk about, well, go start there and then, then I'll ask my, you know, ask the next question. Well, I mean, yeah. So even though okay, you're right. And even though I didn't, I don't want this to be mainly a bunch of sort of preaching to the individual. I do kind of end with what we could, you, should, you should do as an individual. So one is um, to, to note that the glass is part full. So we don't have enough opportunities for really good civic and political action, but we have a bunch uh, and they are, you know, you can, you can go join. So um, one thing is to realize the moral, spiritual and pragmatic advantages of actually being part of the civic life that exists and, and to treat it as, as if we live in a wasteland with nothing going on is itself a mistake because lots of good stuff's going on. And the second claim is that if, um, when you are well enough positioned to do so, you should be trying to expand the opportunities for people to participate uh, in our society. And that doesn't mean participate in government, although that's good, but it means participate in, in the texture of our society, which has got lots of different, well, which, which takes place in lots of different forums. And so then right. more of my advice at the end is all about how to expand those opportunities. Right. And, and make them, bring them to scale or at least how to think about bringing them to scale and, and how to engage bigger questions. And while you're continuing to do these, these, you know, kind of, you know, everyday citizen civic acts. Exactly. Um, so I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it was striking to me, but I also, you know, I think it's, it's right. Um, because, you know, um, first of all, I mean, <laughs> um, democracy is is pretty hard, right? It's it, in some ways it's yeah. distinctively unusually difficult compared to any other way of um, operating your you know operating a society and living in a society. There's just a yep. lot that's asked of us, and so I don't you know I don't think that's um, that's anything distinctive to you. But I also think that what you are um, arguing is that, you know, people have been doing this from, you know, from, from as long as we've had democracy, there's nothing different about them from you. Um, you know, it may or may not be distinctively harder now, but it's still the same kind of mechanisms and the same features of success that were, you know, that obtained 200 years ago. So go mm -hmm. do it yourself. Right. I mean, there there are some real worries out there about whether it just got qualitatively more difficult because of things like social media and fake news and stuff. But I basically, uh, despite trying to take those concerns seriously, I do land where you, you just suggested, which is that we've done this before, we can do it again. I would also say, I think we've maybe reached a kind of a low ebb in our um, estimations of people's capability for democracy, or maybe, maybe one of a bunch of historic low ebbs. I mean, I, I kind of and you, you addressed this issue in your most recent book, but I think, but you're not, I'm not um, arguing with you. I'm arguing with a kind of very mainstream social scientist right now, who I think is basically saying people are stupid and they hate each other. It's basically what we've learned from, <laughs> right? We, yeah. What we've learned from, from social, from, be, from behavior, the behavioral revolution and from um, 
and, and from social science generally is that people are stupid and they hate each other. And I think people are context dependent um, and behave really differently depending on how things are set up. And things are not set up very well. And that's one of the reasons we read off that, uh, you know, behavior that's stupid. And so, you know, so for example, if you set things up the way Twitter's set up, and I'm an avid user and kind of like it actually, but I understand the critiques. And so if you set things up the way Twitter's set up, you're going to get a lot of bad behavior, but you can set mm -hmm. up things different ways than that and you'll get other behavior. So um, I, I feel like the, uh, you know, John, good old John Dewey was is often frustrated because he's so kind of woolly and not tough minded enough for me, but he is, there's Agreed. something healthy about the spirit of, I, of, of kind of that there's untapped human potential that was typical of his era when people also tended to build up things that expected a lot of people and actually people rose to the occasion. So, you know, it would have, you could have said, oh, nobody will ever pay money to buy a high quality news source, which tells them challenging things about the world because people are idiots and they hate each other. Plus in 1900, there was no such thing as that kind of newspaper, but the progressive era journalistic reformers thought, oh, I think people would buy that. And, you know, turned out people did for about 50 years and then they stopped, right. but 70, 75 years and they stopped, but we could, you know, we got to, so I'm just worried that there's a self-fulfilling prophecy involved in thinking that people are so dumb and so hostile, so mutually antipath antipathetical when actually they're, you know, it's a mix. As Eleanor Ostrom always would say, it's a mix. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, you can make a, a pretty, um, and I have made that, you know, the idea that there, that the Christian anthropology is basically correct, that that both of those things, both of those aspects of human beings yeah. are true. That's right. And it just, I mean, but I do also think that yeah. it's, um, it's true that in the moment we find ourselves, um, there's, there's more of that more um of a sense of um you know less concern with the we unless it's just my me and my family less concern mm -hmm. with um um you know living together uh in in some kind of harmony less concern with you know what do we do and mm -hmm. you know i you know yeah social media sure but also you you had a um a president that, you know, just, just not only made, made it okay to, to be, um, uncivil, you know, he made it normative, right? If mm -hmm. you're going to be mm -hmm. a, a, a real patriot, um, people are going to think you're a jerk. And I use jerk just because, you know, it's a family podcast, but, um, <laughs> but so I do feel like, um, it is more difficult and I do, you know, I push back a lot with, you know, my friends who are, you know, talking about transpartisanship and um, and deliberative democracy and trying to find other structures, be, because I, I just I, I, I'm not as confident that we're at a point where um, where we can we can't do anything more than um, than fight. Um, or anything other than fight. And maybe how we do that, you know, must conform to the kind of uh, rules that are both laws and also the things that uh, Gandhi, you know, was referencing in terms of being the change you want to see, modeling mm -hmm. the behavior you're calling for. But mm -hmm. um, it's also like, 
it's different than it was 10 years ago or 15 mm-hmm. years ago or when we were at wing spread or anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, sometimes I feel like the, um, the deliberative democracy people are not engaging those changes sufficiently in their, in their theorizing. Right. I, I agree with that. And, and that is why I also think that you need, um, that we need both the kind of organizational acumen that Eleanor Ocean would recommend, which is to say, we need to build up the robust kind of business models for better behavior. And we also need to know how to make organized sacrifice because it's not just a matter of conversation. But so I agree completely. I also just think though, that this, this pessimism, the pendulum of that pessimism would just go too far to the point Mm -hmm. where we say, forget about it, which is pretty much, I think what a lot of current political scientists would say that we just, you know, anything that you might imagine to be, for example, transpartisan. So I'm not real. I'm not, I don't really, my work is not about transpartisan dialogue, but I I can just imagine, but, but somebody like, you know, the Akin and Bartels book about, um, Mm -hmm. about democracy basically says that would be a complete joke, (laughs) transpartisanship because, because people's identities are partisan. And I just think that's reading off recent data too, uh, too much and not recognizing that we, we change our, we change our, um, behavior depending on what opportunities we have um not easy but of course the the great examples are the huge cataclysmic ones i mean the very same people who were running after running along in support of adolf hitler a couple generations later have one of the best sort of pluralist liberal democracies in the world and like it and they're the same people um and it's because the it's because the context changed Right, the context, the structures, the expectations, the yeah, uh, all of that. You know, the society just changed its mind <laughs> yeah. about what well, was I mean, important, it was partly, what we should expect from each other. Right. I mean, it was partly due to the you know U.S. Army and the, even also the Soviet exactly Army. losing the war. The Army. You know, yeah. makes that kind of necessary. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, that that I, mean, I think. I don't know how much farther we'll go, but I want to at least ask you, make sure I ask you this, because I, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about this. There, you know, among, you know, people like you and me and probably a hundred other people who are, are writing about, here's what I think the problem is and here's what I think we should do about it, right? And, right. and there, there, you could... I think, make a distinction between those who think um, the, the, the lever that you need to, you know, the Archimedean lever that you need to pull on is associated with structures and procedures. So the problem is that we have two parties. The problem is that, uh, that we have money in politics. The problem is that we don't let 16-year-old vote. We don't have a, you know, you've, you've heard these arguments. And then there's another set of arguments like mine that argue that the problem is cultural and we need to um, address, uh, you know, what it is that we understand about um, what we owe to ourselves, what we owe to our society, and what we owe to others. And I'm wondering what you think of that distinction, whether you think it's it's correct, and also where you'd put yourself in that distinction. If, if I can be autobiographical for a moment, um, my first job out of grad school was working for Common Cause on campaign finance reform. And um, so I, I had a structural analysis. I thought we needed to change money in politics. 
And I, as I was there for just two years, um, we lost about half our membership. I like to say not, not because of me, because I was just a junior <laughs> researcher. Not but solely because lost, of you anyway. <laughs> not solely because of me, but we lost about half our membership and it was because, or at least a third um, in those two years. And it was because of the problem that Robert Putnam was about to write about two years later, bowling alone problem, which is that we had lost a, a habits of, of associating. And so I guess I basically, I mean, I, it's a very cheap answer to say we need both. But I, I often mm -hmm. think that the that the so the cultural change to, to a significant extent has to precede at least some cultural change in certain circles has to precede the structural change because you don't get the structural change if you don't have the culture. So Common Cause went from a more powerful lobby for campaign finance to a weaker one because it lost most of its membership. It's also much more dependent on when I was there, we we wouldn't take any um, contribution of any type in greater than $20 because we thought that it would distort wow. our agenda. And now it runs on grant money. I'm not criticizing mm -hmm. them. They had no choice. It was the absolutely part of the, the handwriting was on the wall. They had to do what they did. But, um, you know, you can't have a mass, we had a quarter of a million members paying $20 each when I got there. You can't do that anymore. And that's a culture change. And I think it's also that we also need culture to include sort of savvy and artisanship mm -hmm. and how do you design. Um, but so it's not just purely ideals. It's also know-how. But um, we had a certain kind of know-how in the mid-20th century that was really useful for getting structural change. And now we don't quite have the right know-how for that. We have we have some floating around, but we don't have we don't have the one what we need. So I don't think you can get so I'm for structural change, but I don't think you can get it without a richer a richer uh, underlying infrastructure of organization. Yeah. Um that's exactly what I think. And, um, and maybe that's a, a good point uh, to end it on. Just let me, just give me a minute. I just want to look and see if there's anything that I've forgotten that I want to ask you. you um, let me ask you this. And, you know, I, I mean, if uh, Jenna doesn't like it, she'll, she'll cut it. But um, Jenna was saying, you know, you should ask him about the we versus I, because, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you know, you have the we, and and or uh, you, Peter, have the we in your title, mm -hmm. and I have the you in my mm -hmm. subtitle, right? And mm -hmm. and and so I, you know, I'm I was actually thinking, you know, when I heard this question, I'm like, well, you know, there is no such thing as a we that isn't made up of eyes, right? And and so you know, there at some level, there has to be that kind of introspection uh, among the individuals that are part of the we, but. You know, I don't know mm -hmm. that you, that's what you think. And so I wanted to know whether you mm -hmm. think there's a distinction between uh, my argument and yours. Um, I I probably do think, well, I do think there's the need for introspection, the individual introspection. And I think that, uh, of course, one of the, our choices is to exit. Uh, that's an available choice. Mm -hmm. Well, it should be an available choice. And sometimes that's the choice you got to make. Um, I think the, so partly it's just about rebalancing because a lot of moral philosophy and moral thinking is very much about the I. And, and one of the reasons to bring the we in is just the recognition that by ourselves, we're, we're not very smart. Um, and so we need right. other people. So we shouldn't think we know what's right without being with other people. I mean, on the very philosophical end, I kind of agree there's no we that's not made of eyes, but I also think there's no I that's not made of we's. That's, we come that's into a good the, point. We come into the world, you know, already part of groups. We think in a language, it's a group. 
we're already in a family the minute we're mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're born, or at least some we're in a dyad with a with a mother. Um, and so um, I actually think the interplay between I and we metaphysically is pretty complicated. I don't specialize that in that, but I've read a little um, kind of uh, social ontology, um, and I think it's it's actually pretty complicated. The other thing is it's the we is not only people, because it's actually other stuff like like buildings and uh, logos and bank accounts and stuff. And so, um, you know, you can have, um, you can actually have an orderly, as you do in a university on a regular basis, you can have an orderly replacement of all the people and the we continues. So the, the is what I'm talking about the students, right? So yeah. there's a continuous. Well, not just the students though, right? Yeah. The, I mean, the faculty are slower. turns over, right? Yeah. The human life. But is, the we actually finite. continues. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not really true that the we is, it is true that the we is made up of eyes, but it's also, it's not only not made up of eyes. So, yeah. Penn State is more than the, the, the um, students and faculty of Penn State at the moment that we're talking well, actually, about. Actually, I was going to say that, you know, the, yeah. the one thing I was going to add to your list of the other things that are part of the we is, is history, right? I right. mean, that there is this legacy yeah. that, um, yeah. that you can't just, you know, that you are, I mean, this is part of what we were talking about mm-hmm. before, right? That you you have no choice but to operate in the in in what that legacy has produced, what that legacy, mm-hmm. how that legacy manifests itself in the in the in the current climate, and and mm-hmm. and start your work there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, understanding yourself, this is kind of Burkean, but understanding yourself as part of a dialogue with the future and the the present, the past and the future is is part of it. Although it's only the current well, we that can actually have a conversation with you. Right. I was actually thinking, because um, I remember when you were saying, you know, I really like Hannah Arendt, but I'm going to leave her off. And I'm like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was thinking when you were just talking about how, um, you know, how, that's basically Arendt's argument for that's the only mechanism we have for determining what's true is through conversation. Yeah. Honest. Yeah. Uh, open conversation with each other saying yeah. this is how the world appears to me and so there yeah there is no um there is no truth if and insofar as it's merely mine it has to be ours yeah yeah so, i believe yeah, that's, that's a core that's belief good i really i really appreciate your time and thanks thanks for all your work um look forward to hearing more down the road Yeah, right. Well, I I enjoyed it too, Chris. Thank you so much for having me.